came in early this morning. I was in my office for just a few minutes, and I was talking with Jesus about you guys. He told me he had good stuff for you today, that he wanted to bless you, that he wanted to deposit faith and grace into your life. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for a deposit of faith and grace? Let's just pray and ask him to come. Lord Jesus, thank you that you promised to be with us when we gather. Thank you that we're never alone and that you are here today to give us good things. Lord, I pray that what you put on my heart to share would be beneficial. And I pray for the ears of the people that are here to hear, that you'll give them what they need to build faith and strengthen their lives. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in our series about the life of David. When you read about his life, it's kind of like a good news, bad news story. You know how that works, good news, bad news? And... Um, it's like the story of two friends who were wondering, will there be baseball in heaven? And so they made an agreement that whoever died first would come back and share the answer with the other one. Well, sure enough, one died. His ghost came back to the other on the next day and said, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news, yes, there is baseball in heaven. The bad news... You're pitching on Friday. <laughs> David's story kind of reads like that. Good news, bad news. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel anoints David as the king, the new king. That's good news. After that, he gets sent back to the sheep pasture. And for several years, he's just totally forgotten. That's bad news. Then David wins an epic battle against Goliath. He becomes a national hero he marries the king's daughter, gets a great job on Capitol Hill. That's good news. But King Saul turns out to be an egomaniac who five times tries to kill David by throwing a spear at him, pinning him to the wall. That's bad news. And then he gives David's wife to somebody else. That's even more bad news. And then he puts out a warrant for David's arrest, says he'll pay a bounty for whoever brings David in, dead or alive. That's really, really, really bad news. David presses through one challenge after another. Just when you think in his life that things are about to get better, he comes up against another obstacle. I was reading Stephen Ambrose's account of Lewis and Clark as they came uh, to the Northwest. And for two years, Lewis and Clark battled fatigue and hunger. There were raiding parties they had to fight off. Their crew began to desert. All kinds of setbacks as they were pressing westward and at the beginning of their journey, they'd been led to believe that once they reached the Continental Divide in Colorado, they would find the Columbia River, they could put their boats in the water and float lazily down to the Pacific Ocean. And um, turned out, that wasn't quite how it was. <clears throat> Ambrose writes in his account that as they were approaching the summit, Meriwether Lewis sprinted ahead of everybody so that he could be the first to see. Have you ever done that? My family used to do that when we went to the Oregon coast. We would always try to be the first one to see the ocean as we went over the hill coming into Lincoln City. Meriwether Lewis ran ahead, and what they all assumed was going to be a long, sloping valley that stretched all the way to the Pacific Ocean. <clears throat> Instead, Lewis became the first non-Native American 
to lay eyes on the Rocky Mountains. And sometimes that's how life works, isn't it? Just when you think things are going to get earlier, easier, it's Rocky Mountains. Which raises a question I want us to consider today. What do you do when the path you're taking takes an unexpected turn for the worst? Your career hits a snag and you're like, I didn't see that coming. Or maybe you say, my career hit a snag. I don't even have a career. It hasn't even started yet. Or your kids start having problems when they get into middle school. Some kind of eating disorder or depression or bad behavior. Or maybe you're not married and you thought surely by this age you would be. Or maybe you are married, but your marriage is a far cry from what you dreamed it would be. Or you got divorced and never in a million years did you ever think that would happen to you. What do you do when your life takes an unexpected negative term and catches you off guard? I want you to see a story from David's life that warns against the temptation that we tend to fall into at moments like this. And that temptation is this. Are we going to follow God? Are we going to take matters into our own hands? Maybe to put it in theological terms, are we going to attain by the flesh what was promised to us by the Spirit? It's actually a major theme in the Bible. You see it in almost every single Bible character. Each one goes through a season like this. And today, we're going to see what happened with David. 1 Samuel 24. Because of King Saul's jealousy and, and because he was just a murdering egomaniac, David has been forced to flee into the wilderness. Saul's got his spies out looking for David, and word comes back that David and his merry men are hiding in the caves at En Gedi. So 1 Samuel 24, verse 2. Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheep pens along the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Saul had to poop. Don't be surprised. Everybody poops. It, the literal Hebrew word here says Saul went into the cave to cover his feet, which is a Hebrew euphemism for doing number two. And I'll let you figure out how the phrase cover his feet indicates that. <clears throat> it says this, and David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Talk about an awkward moment. Considering the circumstances, you have to think, is this good news or bad news? Is this good luck or bad luck? David and his men are hiding in the cave, and Saul comes into the very cave, and without his guard, he's left them behind, and he's using the toilet. It says in verse 4, and the men of David said to him, here is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So this is probably the most vulnerable position that King Saul can possibly be in. I don't exactly know the details, but he's all by himself, probably took off his robe and hung it on a rock. He's crouched down, maybe reading the newspaper. <clears throat> and it's almost like a mafia hit. It's like something you'd see on The Sopranos. And David and his men are there, and they're, they're all saying, David, this is your moment. And David arose. The Hebrew word arose indicates he made a determined choice. David arose. The friends, his men are thinking, this is the moment. 
He's going to kill Saul now. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now let me just pause here to say, things that happen by accident or by chance, rather than by design, are not always a sign that God's behind it. And the reason I say that is because it's amazing how many people justify their behavior through coincidental circumstances. Well, my marriage isn't working, but I met this new guy at work who's just perfect. It can't be a coincidence. It, just, it feels like fate has brought us together. Or maybe, hey, I was looking at new cars. I, I know I really can't afford it. But the sales guy said, there's a special on, and it's ending this week. The payment's only going to be $700 a month. Did you know that the average monthly car payment for new cars is $716 a month. The average payment for used cars is $526 a month. But, but it's such a good deal, and the sale ends this week. So circumstances and coincidences can cause me to do something I really shouldn't do. Now, friends, I'm, I'm not saying that God never uses circumstances to direct us. He does sometimes. But other times, coincidences are just that. They're just coincidences and nothing more. But the one thing you can always count on to guide you is God's Word. So the foremost consideration for David's mind is not, what are the circumstances guiding me to do, but what does God's Word say? So what does God's Word say about murder? You know this, the sixth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 13, thou shalt not, thou shalt not kill. It forbids intentional killing. But David's men thought, this is the perfect setup. This is the perfect circumstance. God must have arranged this. But I think all of you know, God's not the only one who can arrange circumstances. The devil does it too. The temptation that David is going through follows a pattern. Satan is tempting David to take matters into his own hands. He even uses the scriptures to do it. Did you see how David men quoted the Bible to urge David to kill Saul? 1 Samuel 24, verse 4. And the men of David said, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemies into your hand. He quotes the Bible to him. But actually, friends, this is exactly how Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. Remember, Satan took Jesus high up on a pinnacle and said, God wants to give you all this. And that was true. God did want to give him all this. But Satan says, but I can give it to you right now. And if you'll just take this little shortcut, in fact, you won't have to go through the cross. You won't have to go through all that suffering. You can just have it all right now. Don't wait for God to give you what you can get for yourself right now. And that's what Satan does. He starts with the truth. He holds up something that God wants you to have. But then he urges you to take a step outside of God's will to get it, to take a shortcut. Think about what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. Satan tells Adam and Eve, God wants you to be happy. He wants you to have God-like wisdom, and that's true. But then he says, to get it, I'm going to show you a shortcut. Eat the forbidden fruit. To Abraham, Satan said, God's promised to make you a father of a great nation. And it was true. But then he said, but Abe, you're childless, and, and, and your wife is really old. So have a kid with your servant, Hagar. In other words, step outside of God and take a shortcut. Do you see the pattern? You might write this down. 
The temptation is to pursue the promises of the Spirit by the power of the flesh, by stepping outside of God's will. You'll never find God's will doing things your way instead of his way. So watch what David does. David crawls right up behind Saul, and just as Saul's leaning over to grab some toilet paper or whatever, David cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse 5, but afterwards, <laughs> David, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. David even felt guilty for doing that. And now here's the point. David's men, are, they're just apoplectic. They're thinking, first you don't kill the guy. He's been trying to kill us. He's chased us all over the place. And then when God puts him right there in front of you, you feel guilty about messing up his clothes. Verse 6, but David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Even if Saul's in the wrong, David says, he's God's appointed guy. He's God's appointed king. It's not right for me to take matters into my own hands. I cannot achieve the purposes of God by breaking God's commands. Write that down. I can't achieve the purpose of God by breaking the commands of God. You know, to be honest, killing Saul would have solved so many of David's problems. In fact, I think if they'd have taken him to jail or taken him to court, he could have pleaded self-defense. He'd have probably got off. Or maybe he could have even played the victim card. That's what we tend to do in our day and time. Saul was using his power and position to abuse David and to manipulate things, and, and uh, Saul probably actually deserved to be killed for what he'd done. And hadn't David been promised the throne anyway, David could have used all of those things to justify it, but David knew you can never achieve the purposes of God by breaking the commands of God. Never. Verse 7, So David persuaded his men with these words, and did not permit them to attack Saul. So Saul finishes up his business. I guess he gives it the royal flush. And um, he uncovers his feet and exits the cave. David waits for a few minutes until Saul's a little distance away. Then he calls out to Saul from the mouth of the cave in verse 8. <clears throat> then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will, lift, I will not lift up my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. And then he takes this little corner of the robe that he's cut off, waves it, he says, see, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. In fact, what David is saying is, your sin doesn't justify my sin. Just because you've been doing wrong things, it doesn't allow me to do wrong things. In fact, David recognizes, if I do wicked, 
that would make me wicked no matter what you've done to provoke it. And then David finishes his, his speech with this plea in verse 14. <clears throat> and against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? David, what David's saying here, a dead dog can't bite you. A flea can't hurt you. Saul, I'm not any threat to you at all. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. <clears throat> May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul added, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept out loud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Now watch this. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. I want you to notice something here. David didn't go back with Saul. I mean, it looked like Saul had, had sincerely repented. He said he was sorry. He asked for forgiveness. He even cried about it. Saul acknowledges that David would one day be the king, yet David still went back to the stronghold. Now, I don't think that's the main point of the story, but I think it's worth pointing out because maybe somebody who's here today just needs to hear this. Just because somebody says they're sorry, just because you've forgiven them, it doesn't always mean you go right back to what was normal. When you've been abused, someone simply saying, I'm sorry, maybe even crying about it, doesn't mean you're obligated to move back in immediately. Here's the point. Forgiveness is offered immediately, but trust is earned. Trust is earned. He says he's sorry, and he might be. Maybe you've been in a circumstance. He says he's sorry, she says he's sorry, but that doesn't mean automatically that things go back to normal. David wisely says, I forgive you, but I'm staying here for a while. Which brings us back to the question. What do you do when the path you're on takes an expected turn for the worse? Well, I think you've got two choices. Choice number one, take matters into your own hands. Or choice number two, doing the hardest thing in all the Bible. Trust God and wait for Him. If you decide to take matters into your own hands, which I, which I really don't advise, it usually takes one of four forms. Well, let's call these Satan's sinful shortcuts. Number one, is it one or A in your notes? A. Letter A. Rational revenge. David's men urged him to settle the score, and they felt right about doing it. Revenge almost always feels right on one level. H have you noticed that? Your wife doesn't appreciate or respect you, so you cheat on her. Your boss is a jerk, so you do sloppy work, and you, and you find ways to undermine him. Somebody discriminates against you, so you discriminate against them. I mean, you cheat on your taxes because you know the government mishandles our money anyway. 
These all feel rational. They're, they all feel justified because they're wrong, but you've endured through it. But David says, out of wickedness comes wickedness. A lesson we need to learn that when we try to repay wickedness with wickedness, it just makes us wicked. Rational revenge. <clears throat> Letter B, pilfered pleasures. Life hasn't delivered for you, so you find an escape into some kind of stolen pleasure. Maybe an affair, or, or maybe <clears throat> you escape by, <clears throat> you know, drinking in, out of a bottle or looking at porn. Or maybe you do what a lot of people do. I, I call it retail therapy. You just buy a lot of stuff. And, and, and when, you, when you're into that, you think, well, who's it hurting anyway? My job? My family? You think, it, it's stressful. I need this. Pilfered pleasures. Next one, C, cowardly compromise. And what you think is, God's not delivering, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. That's what Abraham did with Hagar. <clears throat> you're not married yet. God hasn't brought you a partner and so what you start doing, you start dating someone that you know you shouldn't be with. Because you figure, well, it's better than being alone. Or maybe financially you're not where you want to be. So you start cutting corners. Maybe you overwork and to get the overtime. Or maybe you decided, I'll just quit giving my tithe and that extra money will help me out. Or God's not moving fast enough. God's God's not on my timetable. So you begin to take matters into your own hands. So here we go. Rational revenge, pilfered pleasure, cowardly compromise. I'm kind of my, alliter my alliteration is going pretty well today. D, panic presumption. Because God's not delivering on your timetable, you start manipulating circumstances. If God's not moving fast enough in my life, what I do, I try to force it. In all the things I, I, I'm trying <clears throat> to do, I'm, I'm trying to complete in the power of my flesh what only God can do in the power of His Spirit. These things I've listed are just the opposite of what David did. David said in verse 10, 1 Samuel 24, 10, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. David saying, I'm not going to stretch my hand out in wickedness against God's guy. No matter how justified I am in doing so, I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to do things His way. He's the one who called me. He's the one who made the promises to me. He's the shepherd who I've committed myself to. I'm going to wait on Him. So that phrase, <clears throat> David says, I'll wait on the Lord. Maybe we could just say that together. I will wait on the Lord. Say it with me. I will wait upon the Lord. If you regularly put that phrase into practice in your life, it would change so many things for you. If you're looking for someone to date, say, I will wait on the Lord. You, you didn't say it. If you're looking for someone to date, say it, I will wait on the Lord. After all, God gives us his best. If you're stymied, if you're stymied in your career, if it's gone dead end, say it, I will wait on the Lord. If you're financially not where you want to be, say it. I will wait on the Lord. If you feel like you've been put out to pasture and you're wondering when God's going to put you in the game, say it. 
I will wait on the Lord. If your marriage is not where it should be, if it's not fulfilling to you, say this, I will wait on the Lord. If your kids are not where they should be, if they're doing things that they shouldn't be doing, say this, I will wait on the Lord. Psalm 27 verse 14 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Psalm 37 verse 9, for evildoers, evildoers will be cut off but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. I will wait on the Lord. I'm not going to force things. The waiting room is the land where time seemingly stands still. It's the place where it feels like my life is on hold. I go to the doctor quite often. In my doctor's office, I mean, I might be waiting for 20 minutes, but it feels like days have passed. I mean, the worst thing is once they put you in the little room and you think it's just about to happen now and it just doesn't happen. We're in the waiting room. It seems like progress has come to a screeching halt. So one of the most important exhortations in all of the Bible is wait on the Lord. Even though God promises special blessing for waiting, it's one of the most difficult things we can possibly do. So why? Why is waiting so hard? Because in our fallen humanity, we're prone to take matters into our own hands. We're prone to follow our own schemes, our own ideas. Yet over and over and over again in the Bible, we're told to wait on the Lord. And, and let me just be clear. <clears throat> By waiting, it doesn't mean I sit around doing nothing. David is very active in these chapters. He's a busy bee. He protects himself by running. He prays about the situation. He asks God to change it. But when he's given the opportunity... He confronts Saul and he passionately pleads his case, but he doesn't move out of the posture of trust and he refuses to compromise and to fall into sin. See, waiting on the Lord is a very active thing. You might just be aware of this. The biggest enemy in my life is not Saul. The biggest enemy in my life is my inability to wait. So how do we learn to wait? Well, I'm glad you asked. David wrote about it. He wrote a psalm, Psalm 57. And that song, he writes in the title to the music leader, and he gives him some instructions. He says, sing this song to the tune, Do Not Destroy. Now, actually, that must have been a pretty catchy tune. It's like in the top 100 tunes of all time. Because four different psalms are written to say, sing it to the tune, Do Not Destroy. Psalm 57, Psalm 58, Psalm 59, Psalm 75. And, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for songs to be sung to the tune that other songs are. You know, like My Country Tis of Thee and God Save the King, they're like to the same tune. Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress <clears throat> was a German folk song. Um, when I was in youth group, we sang Amazing Grace to the tune of House of the Rising Sun. Have you ever tried that one? It works. It really works. <clears throat> So David tells the choir director next, this is a miktam, which is a cue to the type of song it was. It, it was like, this is like an R&B ballad. And notice when David wrote it, he says he wrote it while he was hiding in the cave. And he says in verse 1, Psalm 57, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. 
In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. Now, no one completely knows for sure what the word Selah means. M- most Bible commentators think it's a musical term. It's kind of like stop. You know, sometimes when the band stops and they play a little musical interlude. It's like stop here, stop and think about this, stop and ponder this, take a little, <clears throat> take a little um, time. You know, if, if you grew up in the 80s, it, it's, it's kind of like um, hammer time. I mean, this is the time... You're going to do a little dance. It's hammer time. You're going to do a little dance. That's probably what David was doing here. It, it stops. He's going to do a little dance. Stop and think about this. What he wants us to think about, God will send from heaven for me and will help me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What, what do we see in these verses? Well, the first thing you can see God's got a plan. David says, I cry out to God, most high, who fulfills his purpose for me. God's got a plan. God's got a purpose. Even in the cave, God's in charge. Saul's not the one in charge here. God, you're in charge, which means I don't have to try to control things. I don't have to try to control Saul. I don't even have to respond to Saul. I just have to honor God. And when I honor God, I can trust him with the results. Because ultimately, who's in charge? God's in charge. What if every situation that came to you, you believed there's a sovereign God who's got a good purpose for my life, and he's the one in charge? My boss may be a jerk, but I don't have to respond to him. I don't have to pay him back. I don't have to try to control him. Because he's not really the one in charge. God's in charge. It's important because if you're not confident about that, if you're not confident that God's got a good plan for your life, if you're not confident that God wants the best for you, it, it'll, it'll throw you off guard. This is what you need to know. While you're waiting, God's working. The, the Bible reminds us that there are seasons in life. Ecclesiastes 3.1, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. The fact that life is made up of of seasons means, actually, there's a timetable. Between the then and the now, or between the, the now and what's coming next, there's always a delay. And to be honest, it really irritates me. Not just me, I think it irritates most people. It can be frustrating to make a decision or to make a plan and not have it instantly come true. But how many of you know that fruit ripens slowly? Would you rather eat a vine-ripened tomato or one that's been picked green and waited until it turns red? Because the vine-ripened tomato, there's no difference. You know, the one that you pick out of your garden that's ready, you know, ripe on the vine. You pick it too soon, you miss the flavor. Friends, you always reap in a different season than when you sow. And by the way, not all fruit ripens at the same time. When you grow a peach, they're not all ripe at once. One of the most frustrating things about buying peaches in the store, you got to bring them home and wait, you know, for them to get ripe. 
They come in little by little. You pick a few every day. When you start waiting on the Lord and following God's timing, you're not going to get all the answers tomorrow. It's going to come over time. You're going to have to wait. David, he was waiting. David was born around um, 1040 B.C. Samuel anointed him to be king around 1025 when he's about 15 years old. David waits about five years until he battles Goliath. He's, he's about 20 years old. Then for the next 10 years, David enters King Saul's army, becomes a friend of Jonathan. And after that, after his wait, Saul grows more and more jealous. And so he, he goes for another 10 years running in the wilderness. And uh, he's on the hide, uh, hideout. It's not until both Saul and Jonathan die in a battle in 1000 B.C., that David is anointed king. And then it's another seven years of civil war before the kingdoms are united. It's been almost 25 years that David has waited from the day that he was anointed. But while you're waiting, God's working. I wonder if the band would come back now. I think often when you're waiting... You can't recognize that anything's happening. I think about that waiting for fulfillment and maybe you put your money or your energy into an investment. Pretty hard to see it happening day by day. Maybe if you've got some money in investment, you watch the stock market every day and it goes up and it goes down and you just can't see it's doing anything. But friends, while you're waiting, God is working. It's happening. While that seed is hidden in the ground, it's slowly germinating. And when the seed bursts out with God's blessing, it continues to grow. One, one day it's just a, a little shoot, and the next day it's growing up. But you need to trust that God is working. Even when you can't see it, God is working. Plants take time to grow. Friends, even in our life, there's no such thing as instant maturity. No farmer goes out and plants a seed and comes back the next day and digs it up. It takes time to grow. That's why the Bible tells us in Galatians 6, 9, let's not get tired of doing what's good. At just the right time, we'll reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Christians, I think, get tired of waiting too often. Paul told the Romans that... Um, like Abraham, he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. And Paul told his young protege, Timothy, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to keep that which I've entrusted to him. Friends in Christ, are you waiting patiently for God to do the work he's promised? Are you trying to justify what you do by the circumstances around you. What has God said? Could I remind you today, God says, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to keep you close to me. And I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. And I've got a good plan for your life, for your future, to give you a future and a hope. Lord Jesus, Help us remember not to take 
matters into our own hands. Not to do the expedient thing, not to do the convenient thing, not to do the thing everybody says we should do. Help us rely on you and your word. We want to be people of your word. We want to be your followers, your disciples. So I ask you to help us today in Jesus' name. Amen.